If you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to flip over to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 15. Um, we are continuing our journey uh, through some of Jesus' most popular teachings known as the parables. Uh, they're not his only teachings, but they are very popular teachings indeed. And we're going to be in one of the most popular today. It's the parable of the prodigal son. Now, if there was a top chart of the greatest parable hits by Jesus, the parable of the prodigal son would probably be number one for like the last 2,000-ish years. I mean, we know it well. It's a story that we've heard, read, and that we've wanted to apply to our own lives. It's a powerful story of two sons and the gracious love of the father. It's not only popular in the church, it's also popular in pop culture. There are references and storylines that have brought their own interpretation to the prodigal son. Uh, recently this week, Jessica and I went and saw a play called Arsenic and Old Lace. It's an old Cary Grant movie made in the 1940s, and there's this villain. His name's Jonathan. I have his picture here. When he enters the scene, uh, he comes in saying that the prodigal son has returned. But it's an anti-hero. It's not the prodigal son as we know it in the passage. It's the prodigal son that's coming to take over the family's estate with power. He views himself as being spurned by the family, scorned, and now he's coming back to take over. There's another reference. I know I've got some Office fans in here. I have a video of the prodigal returning of Jim and Michael. Ah, the prodigal... The prog my son returns. Now, what's funny about this is, one, that he calls him his progenal son, but also that Jim's not returning. He's not coming back to Michael. You can go to the next slide. Uh, the ne most famous one might be, in recent memory, is C.S. Lewis's interpretation of the prodigal son with Edmund, where he goes and he rebels against his family, but he's graciously brought back in by Aslan. And then uh, there's a famous painting by Rembrandt. Uh, this is his interpretation of the prodigal son. Now, some of these, they range from wrong to funny to moving in the last painting with Rembrandt or with Edmund and C.S. Lewis. But none of them match the power and the moving uh, emotional movement as the prodigal son in the parable that Jesus teaches. It doesn't get any more powerful than the words of Jesus. The parable, in a way, it preaches itself. It has all the buzzwords. It has all the themes from compassion, mercy, forgiveness, but it ends on this cliffhanger. Jesus keeps us wondering what's going to happen next. So today what we're going to do is what we've done with all of the parables. We are going to take them as we should. We're going to investigate the words of Jesus, do some comparison and contrast from the younger brother to the older brother, but there's one main idea that I think is in this text. There's a lot that we should see, and there's a lot that we will see. But if there's one main idea that I want you to see as you leave here today, it's this. God's willingness to accept sinners. The prodigal son tells us a story of God's willingness to accept sinners. From the self-imploding to the self-righteous, God's willingness to accept sinners. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to read from us uh, in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. It's not going to be on the screen this morning, so you're going to have to follow along in your Bible or on your phone. It says this, And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to the father, 
Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Let's pause there. We'll pick up the second half as we continue through. But let's look at the younger son first. Now, this passage opens up. When we start reading this parable, it might seem like a simple introduction, but it's actually an invitation to engage our minds with the Old Testament. It starts off by Jesus saying, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Now, if you think about it, the Old Testament is filled with stories about brothers. Sometimes it's two brothers, sometimes it's twins, sometimes it's half-brothers, sometimes it's a lot of brothers. But there's a consistent theme where God uses the younger brother to upend our expectations about what we think should happen. Consider Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel, but God protects Abel. Consider Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael's the firstborn son to Abraham, but he's not the one through the promise is going to go through. It's through the younger brother, Isaac. Consider Esau and Jacob. They come out of the womb feuding, and their life is filled with feuds. But the younger brother, Jacob, swindles the promise uh, from Esau. Consider Judah, or consider really the older brothers and Joseph, but really Judah and Joseph. The older brothers despise Joseph. And much like the prodigal son receives a robe from his father, so Joseph receives a robe from his father. And the brothers hate him for it. They plot for his uh, cell into slavery and to tell his father that he's been killed. But in a great reversal, in a great upending of our expectations, it's Joseph that comes back and saves the brothers. Aaron and Moses. Aaron's the older brother, but Moses is the one that God uses to lead his people out of Egypt. Consider the older brothers in David. David's the younger brother. He's the one that's chosen to be king. Consider David when he dies. Does he choose his eldest son to rule and reign? No. He chooses his younger son, Solomon. A simple introduction to this parable is cluing us in to a great reversal that's about to take place. If they've been familiar with the scriptures, they'll be clued in to a father who had two sons. This is a very familiar story in the Old Testament. But then also, remember how this parable is placed. If you look back up in the scriptures, you'll see that this parable is in third line of three, of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and now a lost son. But look at Luke 15.1, how this par- these parables start off. This is going to clue us in to what's happening. It says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. 
But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they mutter to themselves, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And if these mutterers sound familiar to you, they should. There are some famous mutterers and grumblers in the Old Testament. Luke is drawing our attention to these murderers to remind us who murdered in the wilderness, murdered against Moses and Aaron, and by extension, God. Look at Exodus 17, 13. It'll be on the screen. It says this, But when the people were thirsty for water there, they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Next, we have Numbers 14, 2. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. And then lastly, in Deuteronomy, you grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Now, if you remember about these mutterers, they mutter against God. And God says eventually, fine, you won't enter into the promised land. What do the Pharisees pride themselves in? understanding and applying the law of Moses. And Luke is showing us, just as those who grumbled against Moses and by extension God, clamoring to go back in Egypt, just as they were kept out of the promised land, those who mutter against Jesus, the greater Moses and God in the flesh, will find the same fate. Luke's cluing us in to these mutterers and how they take Jesus. And this is the setup to upend our expectation, the younger and the older brother, or the Pharisees and the sinners put under the light in this parable. So as much as we can, let's try and understand the audacity of what the son, the younger son is doing to the father. He says this, the younger said to the father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got all he had together and set out for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Now what happens when we get in situations that we can't control and we want to get out of, we turn to the offensive. Consider the younger brother here. He has no right to ask for his inheritance now. He has no authority to demand his inheritance. The father could simply say no. So what the younger son does is he turns to the offensive now, for us to receive an inheritance, for me to receive an inheritance from my father and my mother, what must happen? They must die. Their funeral must take place. Their property, it must be uh, sold and liquidated and an inheritance received. So when the younger brother comes to the father asking for his share of the inheritance, what he's asking for is his father to be dead. He is essentially saying, I wish you are dead. I don't want you. I don't want this family. If you just give me what's my inheritance, I will leave. Leave you alone. I'll live my life. You live your life. But I want you to know I want out. I don't want this anymore. I don't want to live under your rule. I don't want to live under your authority. And so what the son says is I want you to be dead. You mean nothing to me. Die already. And not only are these hateful words. Uh, there's a shame that's associated with it. Parents, you know this feeling when your child throws a fit in a public place. 
And just like this shame immediately comes up. They're just throwing a fit because they're two. But you feel like this is an extension of your parenting and all that you've done for the past two years. And here they are throwing a fit. and You don't want anybody to see. So you pick them up and you just get them out of there. Now imagine this younger son verbally ripping his father apart saying, I don't love you. I don't love what you've done for me. I wish you were dead. I want to be gone. There is a verbal shaming in a way that takes place. I mean, imagine the hired servants in the hands saying, man, did you hear what happened with the younger son? He said he wishes his father was dead. What happened? What goes on behind closed doors? Is that father a mean man? Is the son right? Imagine the gossip that goes on after that. There's a level of shame that comes with this request. But what makes this request even more surprising is the father's reaction. What does the father say? Now, hearing this in a first century patriarchal society, even hearing this now, it's offensive. No father would ever entertain such an offense. The shame that the son is doing by taking you to task, wishing you dead, you chase the son off. I wish you were dead. Give me your things. Sell your property so that I can have it. You say, get out of here. Are you kidding me? Russell, uh, we haven't had this experience, but in a much more mild, mild, tamed down experience, uh, his little sisters will often want to go play in his room or play with his toys. And one day, I don't remember why, but Russell said, no, you can't play in my room and you can't play with my toys. And I said, wrong answer. You share your things. And he said, but it's my room. And I said, wrong answer again. This is my house and that's my room. This is just given to you for the next 16 years. This is all mine, and we share our things. What I wanted Russell to understand is that this was a good gift from his father, and we share our good gifts with our sisters. So when a son comes and he says this offensive thing to his father, saying, give me my inheritance, I wish you were dead, we chase them off. We think they were absolutely crazy, but what does the father do? It says this, He divided his property between them. Now, this is where, if we see the Greek word behind property, it gives it even more oomph, it gives it even more weight. The word here for property, that they translate property, is bios. And if you remember back to ninth grade biology, you'll remember that biology is the study of what? Life. It's the study of life. So what the father is doing, what he says is that he divided, a literal translation would be that he divided his life among them. Now consider this. He has a large estate with hired hands and servants. It takes up a lot of land. It has a lot of animals to divide. It's not a one-day ordeal to itemize inventory, to sell and divide. And in a literal way, he is tearing his life apart. In a first-century society where your wealth is your land, where your life and your identity is your land, and the animals that you own and the property that you have, for this father to divide it out is to divide his life. And this is an unusual response. I mean, even for us today, we get that this is not the norm of how we would respond. But this is the father giving his son over to his terrible decision. Much in a similar way, how when we sin and rebel against God, he hands us over to our sin. Consider Romans 1, uh, 20 through 25. 
Paul is telling us about the wrath of God. And when we think about the wrath of God, imagery that typically comes to our mind is fire and brimstone and hell. But the wrath of God that's shown here in Romans 1 is God handing us over to our sinful desires. It says this, starting in verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now consider this son. From his young little life, the goodness of his father's order of his estate has been seen and experienced. It's a large estate. It's probably a wealthy estate. This son has lacked for nothing. He is without excuse. He has seen the hand of his father, and it's been good. Let's continue in Romans. It says this, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desire of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Here is the Son saying that he wishes his Father was dead. Can I just have your inheritance? And the Father, in a remarkable way, hands him over to it. He hands him over to his own self-destruction. Since the beginning of the young son's life, he would have known and seen the goodness of the father. But being futile and darkened in his heart, he exchanged the love of the father for what the parable says, squandering his wealth and wild living. Now what Jesus does next is he turns up the volume of the offensiveness of the son's sin. In verse 13, it says, Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, if we have our Old Testament minds back on, to go to a distant country in a Jewish setting would be either to go into a Gentile country or to worship another god. Think about Elimelech in the beginning of Ruth where there's a severe famine that comes across the country, and he goes to the Moabites. And it's essentially Elimelech taking his family to go and worship the Moabites. So not only is this son wishing his father dead, this son is wishing everything about his family dead. I don't want to worship your God. I don't even want to live in the same country. I'm leaving and going to make my own way. It gets worse. It says this, After he had spent everything that he had, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the the fields to feed pigs. The Greek word here for hired himself out is kaleo, which literally means to join yourself. So think about a husband and a wife. When the two become one, they're joined together. Here's the younger servant or the younger son joining himself to a Gentile pig farmer. But it gets worse. It says this when he was sent to the fields to feed the pigs, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So not only is he in a different country, most likely worshiping a different God, he squandered everything that he has, 
He is among the pigs. You can't eat pigs in this society. And much less, or much worse, you don't even want to eat the things that the pigs eat. And here's where the story should end. If Jesus was telling this story to a bunch of Pharisees, they would say, Bravo, Jesus. Wonderful story. I can apply this to my life immediately. The parable is that you don't spurn your father. You honor your father and mother. You don't live your life squandering your opportunity and wealth. If you associate yourself with the wrong crowd, bad things will happen. If you feed your addictions, bad things will happen. Be prepared to ruin your life. Good sermon, Jesus. This is where the sermon should end. And the Pharisees would be very proud. But it's not where it ends. It upends our expectations as Jesus has prepared us for. It continues. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. So when the son comes to his senses, he devises a plan to go home. But he knows what he can't do is he can't just go home. He can't just walk in the door and say, back, I'm, I'm sorry. He knows that what he's done is he's ripped apart the family's life. He knows that what he's done has been so offensive to the father that he can't just go back because home is a relationship. Home is a place of standing. And he's torn that relationship and he's torn that standing with his father. So he makes a plan to earn it back. He formulates this plan to say, let me be one of your hired servants. This would be someone that not lives on the estate, but lives in town. So he's going to live in town, make his own way, come in, work, and earn his way back to his father. To be a hired servant would be like a day laborer. But will that even work? He's ruined his life. He's torn his father's life apart. Now, if you're the father and you see your son coming who's not only offended you, he's shamed you, he's wished you were dead, he's harmed your family, he's lessened your estate's net worth by a third. For him to divide out his portion would be a third of his assets gone to the younger son. Now, if you see this younger son coming in the distance, what do you immediately think? This better be good. This better be good. What on earth are you doing coming back here? And what do we know about the son? The son's been offensive with his word. He's shown a particular callousness towards his father. He's used his father to not get his father, but to get his things. He squandered his life. And when we read this story, there is no redeeming quality about this son. We feel bad for people uh, that maybe have made a bad choice and it didn't work out well. Maybe uh, they got a bad financial tip about a movie company and they bought that stock and the stock price went down. You might feel bad about those people that money just went down a little bit. You might even feel bad about somebody that set off to do their own thing and circumstances went their uh, poor way. Somebody hurt them. You'd feel bad for them. 
But for somebody who's been deliberately hateful and spiteful, someone that has been deliberately uh, angry, made bad decisions, we don't feel bad for them. We often think, "Ah, they get what they deserve. They've made their own bed. And here's what I want us to pause and consider for a moment. I want you to consider your history with Christianity or the church. It might be a mixed bag. What was once easy for you to believe about God as a child has become more difficult in your older years because maybe you've become more older and wiser, and things have happened to you. Hurt relationships, broken marriages, kids that have left home, death in the family, bad financial decisions, whatever it is. And you start to think and you start to wonder, is this God out to get me? Is this God out to judge me? Can I trust him? Who is God even? What is God like? And what I want you to do in this this very moment, if we could just pause for a moment, I want you to think of the one thing in your life that you really regret. I'm not talking about the bad financial decision. I'm talking about the things where you have really hurt someone or that you've really done something that has hurt a bunch of people, and however many years later, it still haunts you. It comes up in your mind when you least expect it. It follows you around like a bad sickness or an aching bone in your body. You can never seem to shake it. What is it in your life that you really regret the one thing that maybe no one knows about, that if this came out into light and people saw these things that I've done, I I would lose all standing in my family or the community or the church. I want you to bring that to the forefront of your mind. I want you to hold it in your hands and I want you to really, really consider the one thing that you hate about yourself. The one thing that you really, really regret. And I want you to feel all of that angst and everything that is caused in your life. And I want you to hear these words from Jesus, who's showing us the very nature of God. It says this, But while his son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. Here's the good news of the gospel. Everything that you hate about yourself, everything that you want hidden, that you want to hide, every poor decision that you continue to make, can God love me? Does God have me? What's his nature like? Does God love me? Yes. But what about no? Yes, he loves you. Put the robe on him. This is my son. He's mine Friend, this parable is telling us God's quickness to forgive sinners, his willingness to come to you. So whatever you have, whatever angst you have in your heart, whatever is weighing you down, you can freely give it to the Lord. It's his nature. It's his nature to be compassionate and forgiving. It's his nature to be merciful and kind and loving. And we see it in this father to his son.
It says this about his father. While he was still a long way off. This gives you the idea that the son's image had never left the father. The father still thinks about his son. The father still wonders about his son. The father probably wishes to have one more conversation with his son. Don't do this. Don't don't divide the estate. Don't take your inheritance now. I know you're upset now, but don't do this. It's this image that the father has always hidden, the image of the son in his heart. Now notice this. It says that when he saw his son, what does he do? He doesn't stand back and grumble and say, this better be good. No, he runs to his son. And in the first century Middle Eastern patriarchal men, owners of estates, they do not run. Children run, youth run, but men, that would mean picking up your long robes, bearing your legs, showing a sign of weakness by letting your emotion overtake you. People would say, look at this man running. They'd probably mock him and make fun of him, but he doesn't care. It's his son that's been lost, and now he's back. Compassion overtakes him. And as the son is getting out this plan to the father, he says, I've sinned against you and uh, against heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But does the father even acknowledge what the son's saying? No. He says, quick, bring the robe, bring the ring, bring sandals, slaughter the fattened calf. My son has returned. The Greek here says that he pressed himself into him. The father fell into his son and began kissing him. If you want to do some further story, uh, study on this, go back and see how this parallels, I think it's in Genesis 33, with Esau and Jacob, where Jacob has wronged Esau and he keeps sending things ahead to appease Esau. But when Esau sees Jacob, he runs to him and falls into his brother and they weep together. Here, the story upends itself again, where the son doesn't have anything to bring back, but the father doesn't care. He runs to his son. So what do we learn about the father? He's the one who's waiting and watching for his son. He's the one who doesn't even let the pre-planned confession finish. He's the one whose shocking love changes the plans for the son, who wants to be a hired servant. The father will have none of it. He's the one who has compassion on his son while he's squandering life in a foreign country. And this initiating love by the father, it protects, adorns, and celebrates his son. Notice the father doesn't ask a question. He doesn't reprimand him. He doesn't say, okay, before we go into the feast, I just, we need to you know, get a few things straight about what you said back there. And know that this, like, We don't know how long this has taken place from when the son leaves until when he returns. We know that it's not a short amount of time. He has a large estate and a third of it. It's a good amount of wealth that will take you a long time. And then a famine comes. It takes a while for a famine to reach down to the people where it's really affecting you to where you're going to go hire yourself out to a Gentile pig farmer. And we know that he's worked there for some time before he comes to his senses to go back to his father's house. This could be months, even years before the son returns. And the father's affection for the son has not dwindled in the least. Now take a moment to consider this truth and the immense goodness of this parable by who's telling it. 
Who is this? It's Jesus. And what does Jesus claim that his mission on earth is to do? To inaugurate the kingdom, to show everyone what the kingdom of God is like, to show them what the very nature of God is like. And Jesus is saying, this is who your God is, compassionate and gracious, full of mercy and abounding in steadfast love. So imagine this now, as Paul probably has these stories of Jesus on the mind when he writes Ephesians 2, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world in the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So for us, we are all like the younger son who has gone and worshipped other gods. We've all given ourselves to created things rather than the creator. And he says this, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. By grace you have been saved. Meaning that we have no works of righteousness that earn our favor. We can't come to the Father and say, let me be a hired servant. Let me show you how much I love you. No, it's by grace alone that you have been saved. And what does God do? It says that he raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Meaning that in order that in the coming ages that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed to us in the kindness of Christ Jesus, he adorns us with the love and mercy of Christ Jesus. He places the ring on our finger and the sandals of our feet. The righteousness of Christ Jesus is the robe that we wear. Ask yourself, in this moment, can I believe that God is this good to me? Scripture tells you, yes, come to the Father. And we might think, this is the end of the story. As our eyes are welling up with tears, we might think how powerful this must be for people to hear this. But that's not the end of it. Remember Luke 15.1. There's probably half of them that their eyes are welling up with tears, but there's the other half that their hearts are getting hard. They don't like this story. Because then the story shifts to the older brother. It says this. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called to one of the servants and asked him, what is going on? He said, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property, with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, said the father, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. Now there's a part of us, I believe, if we're being honest, we get the complaint of the older brother. We understand where he's coming from. But Jesus is showing us something. He's showing us this, that in the younger brother, our depravity of sin that we willingly choose 
separates us from the Father. But in the older brother, the depravity of our self-righteousness also keeps us from the Father. Let's watch how this unfolds by comparing uh, the older and the younger brother. When the younger brother first meets with the father, he wishes him dead, not wanting the father's, the father, but wanting the father's things. When the older brother meets with the father, how does he address him? Does he call him father? No. He doesn't give him a position of honor. He just says, look. He comes from a position of authority. I know what's best, and you've wronged me in this way. Which draws us to another comparison. Notice the accusation of the younger brother to position himself in the positive and position his younger brother in the narrative, in the negative. He says this, this son of yours who squandered his life with prostitutes. Now, does the text tell us that the younger brother squandered his life with prostitutes? It doesn't. Now, we could imagine that it he has. We could imagine it says he's done wild living, but the older brother puts a very specific negative on this younger son. He's casting blame and doubt and derision toward the younger brother. Does the story tell us? We can imply, but the other brother doesn't know. The servant hasn't told him, and the brother is harboring hatred and bitterness towards his younger brother. And notice how the father responds. The father says, the, the older brother says, this son of yours, but the father draws his attention back to say, this brother of yours. The great compassion of the father to the older brother, he says, all that I have is yours. Everything is yours. But notice what the older brother is doing. It's the exact same plan as the younger brother. What does the younger brother want? He wants to make himself a hired servant. What does the older brother always viewed himself as? The hired servant, earning the father's love, earning his own righteousness. The older brother's plan is the same as the younger brother's. And it says this, that the father pleads with his son. And this translation isn't wrong, but the English somewhat mutes it. What's happening is this idea that the father keeps pleading, keeps entreating. He keeps asking his son to join him in the party. And then the parable, it just ends. We wonder, will the older brother go into the party? Will he be reconnected with the younger brother? And this is what Jesus often does because he wants to put us in the spotlight. He wants to make us ask the same question. Now these brothers... They don't have any names. They're just the younger brother and the older brother. But if we had to give the older brother a name, I think we could rightly call him Jonah. If you remember the story of Jonah, it ends in a very similar manner. Jonah chapter 4, uh, Jonah is really angry. And God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry that I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And then the story of Jonah 
ends. Because it's making us wrestle with this truth about God. He is gracious and compassionate. He's merciful and full of love. God's compassion and mercy and love is offensive to our own self-righteousness. It's offensive to those who think that they have it all figured out and all planned together. It's God's great compassion, mercy, and love. Is it a warm invitation for you, or is it offensive to you? Will the older brother see the love of his father? Will he see the value that his father places on his sons that are made in his image? This is what Jesus is wanting you to see. He's wanting the Pharisees to see. That these sinners who are far off have now come to him, God in the flesh, and it's worth celebrating. Scripture tells us that heaven celebrates when one sinner repents. So what do we learn from this parable? Three things. First, the the initiating love of the father to his sons. Notice that the father comes out to both sons. Without the initiating love of the father, we would be nowhere. Consider this in Romans. He says, you therefore have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else For at whatever point you judge one another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. It's God's initiating love and kindness that brings us to the Father. Second, it's a challenge for us to look at the width, depth, and nature of our sins. We have all been the younger brother in our depravity of our sin who has willingly chooses sin that separates us from the Father. We have all self-imploded our lives. None of us are worthy to go before the Father. But in a similar way, we need to guard ourselves from being the self-righteous who prides ourselves in being able to keep the ways of the Father so that he must love us. And then lastly, God's willingness to accept sinners. This parable shows us God's great willingness to accept sinners. And this is what makes this parable worth meditating on. This is what makes it so popular not only in the church life, but in pop culture, is God's willingness to accept sinners as they are. Jesus is the most compassionate, merciful, understanding, patient, generous, forgiving Father. He shows us the nature of the Father, and he tells us, all that I have is yours. Let's pray together. Jesus, I... um, I pray that by your spirit that you can soften our hearts uh, to come to you, to see the initiating love of you, and that we forsake uh, the attitude of our hearts that make us want to mumble and grumble against one another or 
maybe even mumble or grumble against you that says, why have you done this? What are you doing in my life? Why can't I seem to get it straight? Why are you out to forget me? Jesus, help us to see that you are out to get us. Uh, That, Father, that you're calling us to yourself. Help us to see that despite of our self-imploding sinfulness or our self-righteousness, that all of this is sin that we can lay before you. So, Father, in this moment, I pray for those here this morning who are being haunted by their past sin, who are struggling with it. Father, that they uh, place it in your hand. Father, for your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And Father, I pray that we can hand over the burden of our self-righteousness, the burden of us having to figure it all out, the burden of our sin, the burden of even our disease or our sickness to know that you are making all things new. Help us to see that you are making all things new and you invite us to come to your table. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.